Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Ethan Brown to the program. And Ethan, uh, I know that in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, you also uh, you do some broadcast of your own. Uh, talk to me about uh, about your podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Yo, thanks for having me, Brian. The Sweaty Penguin is a comedy climate podcast presented by PBS's climate initiative, Peril and Promise. And we are working to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. So we've been running since very early quarantine, started as a hobby with some friends. Now it's an actual thing, which is really cool. So go check that out. Very nice. Now, um, you are currently living in Southern California. I know that uh, California is one of those states that's really leading out in terms of clean energy. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they've set a very specific target date. There will be no more internal combustion engine cars sold after this date. Um, But I'm looking at an article you wrote for the Orange County Register that says electric vehicles aren't a silver bullet for California's clean energy future. Uh, Where would you like to begin on discussing this? Sure. So I wrote this article in part, I was kind of looking at a few different issues that were going on. First off, I think everyone knows about the traffic in California. I used to live in Orange County. I just moved up to Los Angeles this weekend, but I was always doing that drive from Orange County to LA to visit friends and go to events. And the I-5 South is the most congested road in the country. It costs drivers, I believe, 89 hours annually. That adds up to thousands of dollars of lost time. On top of that, we had a really bad heat wave back in early September what, that pushed the electric grid to the brink. They had to text everyone in the state to say, cut your power use during the main hours of the day. People did, so there were no blackouts. If they didn't, there probably would have been. So I'm seeing a lot of these different issues right at the same time as, uh, and I should also say, walking, biking, public transit have not been great experiences either. (laughs) All of this happens, and at the same time, California announces this ban of gasoline-powered vehicles by 2035. I'm a climate change person, so I obviously support the need to move to cleaner transportation, but it seemed like with other car-free alternatives not available, everyone would need to buy an electric car. And with the traffic, with the electricity, with some of the other issues, I was a bit concerned about that might leave a little meat on the bone, if that makes sense. Yeah. I I can understand the desire for clean energy. Getting there, though, seems to be the big question. And and sometimes it feels like there there's a headlong rush. We're going to get there no matter what, and it's going to be really rough to get there. Is there any? Is there a better way to get to clean energy that doesn't require that uh, that people either spend you know a lot of money for an electric vehicle? They're not cheap, or otherwise be um, severely inconvenienced. You know, while the the clean energy technology catches up. Yeah, so I'll say first where I think they may have thought out some of the issues. So I think uh, one thing is a lot of these car manufacturers now with this policy have realized, okay, we need to just start making electric cars. And a lot of them have already come out and said they really only plan to make electric cars past 2035. So in that sense, This pushes them to get moving on electric cars. Already, they're projected to become cheaper. Hopefully, this uh, economies of scale can improve that. Where I think we need to take a closer look is 
electric cars, again, they don't fix traffic. They strain the electric grid. They require cobalt and lithium mining, which you need to work out. Um, a whole bunch of stuff there. And we can work these things out, and we should. But we can also say, how can we make L.A. and California more walkable, more bikeable? How can we make it so I don't have to wait 20 minutes for a delay on the Amtrak because there was a wildfire on the tracks? Um, these are things that are going to happen and are going to make it difficult for a transition when, like you say, there's a lot of benefits to it. We can do it, but we have to think all of these things through. What uh, what are some of the steps that could make L.A. more walkable and more bikeable, for instance? And in fact, uh, what are some of the things that are keeping those from happening now? Are, are there are there a lot of uh, zoning hoops or red tape that has to uh, you know be cut through in order to, to make those things happen? I just got to L.A., so I wouldn't be the best expert on that specifically. What I can say is. I know just in general, some of the barriers to bikeability have been lack of bike lanes, also lack of respect for bike lanes. Mm. Um, people will park construction vehicles in there. There's an amazing video, I think it was in New York City, that you can find on YouTube where a biker was raising awareness by just biking straight into every single <laughs> construction <seen> vehicle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. That kind of thing's an issue, and, and and it goes both ways. I think bikers ought to do a better job respecting some of the laws of traffic, not running through red lights, that kind of thing. I love biking myself, and I try my best with that, but sometimes it is tempting when you see no one coming to just act like a pedestrian. So there are a variety of things we can do to improve that stuff. I think public transit is the area where there's just so much room for improvement because I grew up in Connecticut, so I was very familiar with New York City, went to college in Boston, and those two cities, people from there complain about the transit, but it is so much better than it is out here. And I think if California wants to project as a leader on clean transportation, this is something we really need to work out. So that was my next question for you was uh, when it comes to mass transit, um, trains, are, are they are they really are, are they the better way to go? I think they're an important piece. I think that with transportation and all of the above approach is the best way you can go. Um, just to give you an example, like I was talking about the I-5 South, which is mm -hmm. the most congested road in the country. Right along that, there's a train track that there's an Amtrak and there's a Metrolink, which is more of a commuter rail. And on price, it's actually pretty good. I would take the Amtrak to and from L.A. and it was a $32 round trip and often faster than driving up there, given how much traffic there is. But back in, I think it was September, um, there had been a cyclone that we kind of caught the tail end of, and it led to some erosion that basically put a whole bunch of the track out of commission. And it's been two months and there's still no word on when that section of the track is going to be back. So that's the kind of thing where I look and say, most congested road in the country, parallel to it, train out of service. Yeah, I think we can logically say that getting the train up and running, making it more accessible, making sure there aren't ridiculous delays all the time 
it could help in more ways than just the climate. It could make life easier for people. I know um, I have a daughter who lives in Europe and, you know, I've been there to visit her. And um, I'm pretty impressed, actually, with uh, with how, you know, trains make it possible to, to get wherever you need to go. Um, I'm just curious, in an in a area like Los Angeles, uh, is there a place for, for, for instance, buses or or you know, is do do buses present a challenge in terms of you know for even if they're electric, you know the batteries for them, like you'd mentioned, cobalt and lithium and so forth. I mean, there's no there's no real easy answer, but uh, it sounds like you're exploring some of the the things that are definitely within reach, but but need to be implemented. Absolutely, it's a big challenge, and there's really no perfect solution. And I think my real goal here was just to say. I would caution against looking at electric cars as the only solution, because given that there's imperfections with every single one, I mean, not everyone's a biker, not everyone can walk everywhere. You got maybe a mile radius. So we need a whole bunch of different options and we need to explore how we can make each one as good as it can be if we're taking the currently most popular one off the table in 13 years. So what kind of timeline do you foresee for for getting some of those changes made? I mean, 2035 sounds like it's a ways off for for there to be no more, you know, internal combustion engine cars sold in California. It's coming fast. What uh, what are some of the things that have to happen in the very near future to make sure that we're addressing these needs ahead of time and aren't, you know, struggling to catch up? I think first and foremost, which is already happening, maybe more than we even realize, is getting electric vehicles to be cost competitive with gasoline powered vehicles and ideally even cheaper. And I think we are headed in that direction from what I hear. It's certainly not there yet. Um, I talk in the article about how I ended up buying a gasoline powered car because an electric vehicle was both too expensive and would take months longer to arrive. So that's something we got to do. I know we're projected to, but still got to do it. Beyond that, I think we really do need to sit and figure out how to make our public transit better. And in LA, I know there is kind of a train system within the city as well. I have never ridden on it, to be honest with you. I'm sure I'd have horror stories for you if I did. I've certainly (laughs) heard them from friends. (laughs) So I think that finding, I don't wanna speak out of turn since I haven't experienced it myself, but from what I understand, it is very difficult to get from one part of the city to another on that train, especially as compared to other cities I've lived in, like New York City and Boston. And you mentioned Europe. I don't love doing the America-Europe comparisons all the time, but we were in Paris this summer and oh my gosh, that was the easiest train. So, Again, we're talking with Ethan Brown. He's a contributor for Young Voices. And Ethan, I'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Grace Bidalic back to the program. Grace, uh, you're going to be a familiar voice for some folks, but for folks who are meeting you for the first time, would you mind telling us just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Of course. Brian, thank you so much for having me again. Um, I work as the lead for Young Voices Dissident Project, which is a project you guys might have heard a little bit about on this program um, and on other programs uh, across the country. 
Um, in addition to that, I am a theater critic for the New York Sun and a young conservative that is living in New York City. All right. And, and I'm looking at an article you wrote for uh, the, the New York Daily News. Why are New York City young Republicans already endorsing Donald Trump? Wow, we still got, you know, the better part of a couple of years before the uh, 2024 election rolls around. But I, I, it's not just Trump. I mean, it seems like the, there are a lot of people who are really lining up and, and getting some momentum built up for that election. What's the story behind the uh, New York City Young Republicans and, and their endorsement to nearly two years out? Yeah, absolutely. So I was <laughs> walking into a Tuesday morning meeting at the Atlas Freedom Forum, actually, when I got a notification on my phone uh, that said New York Young Republican Club has endorsed President Donald J. Trump for re-election. Um, and to me, uh, it just felt so early in so many ways, right? So obviously, it came in, in the morning at about 9.30 a.m. And it also came before the former president had even officially announced his bid for office. Mm. And then additionally, with over a year, a full year before campaigning for 2024 begins in earnest. And so, um, you know, as the day went on, I was sort of irked more and more by this letter that just felt sort of, you know, ill-timed and out of touch with the general public. Now, is that's I'm asking, is that is that more of a distaste for Donald Trump or just simply we just got through an election? Are we really piling it on again? You know, so soon? Well, you know, it feels like, uh, of course, Brian, it feels like I've been watching uh, uh, ads for ads for the campaign. Uh, not even two weeks ago, it felt like, you know, it was just ad after ad after ad. But in addition, it's difficult uh now to see how we as a, a conservative party, as a Republican party, can throw our full weight behind Donald Trump uh, as we might have in, in days past. I think, you know, while a, a strong conservative can look at the many accomplishments of, of Donald Trump during his presidency, right? So I write in the article, you know, he established the Abraham Accords, he boosted the economy, he achieved massive deregulation or deregulation. He limited federal government powers during a national crisis. And in addition, he appointed three Supreme Court justices, which, in my opinion, makes him one of the most uh, influential presidents in modern history. But as a party, we also have to have a frank discussion and think critically about the implica implications of his many losses and what that means for the party moving forward, right? So we can look at the midterms, for example, all of these ads that we've been watching for weeks and weeks and weeks, we look at these midterms and we can kind of see the party doing sort of an about face here, right? So Trump shot himself in the foot in a lot of ways. He undercut incumbent candidates in favor of his own, you know, which it seemed as if he was propping up out of no other reason than just sort of personal loyalty. Um, and then we, we saw those candidates lose. Uh, most big and some in previously red districts. Um, and so I think the takeaway for the Republican Party is that Trump can't win, you know, and we finally know it. Yeah, I'm I have to say, I, I did not vote for Trump the first time around. But at the same time, I got to give the guy credit. He was not the monster that we were assured he would be when he was elected in 2016. He did make yeah. a, you know, mistakes along the way. I think that can be said of every president. 
And at, at the risk of offending, you know, the Trump faithful, I do have to wonder if uh, his 15 minutes is up and it would be more useful to step aside and mentor, you know, who's going to come next. And with that in mind, I have to ask you, if not Trump, who do you see that would, would be likely to step up and take that mantle of leadership and, and be able to carry on, you know, um, in the face of some of the opposition that, uh, you know, that Trump faced as well as other Republicans? Yeah, absolutely. So insofar as the, uh, the the 15 minutes go, uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely time for, for Trump to step aside and for us as a party to examine not only leadership on a federal level, but also on a, on a local level, which is why part of my article is about, you know, Wax himself. Um, as far as leaders coming up in the ranks, I think that we've seen uh, specifically Ron DeSantis in Florida. You know, we saw a red wave in Florida. That is the only place in the entire United States that we saw uh, a really sort of defining uh, red wave. Um, we saw that with Marco Rubio in Florida as well. We saw how uh, those two conservative candidates, specifically Ron DeSantis and his leadership in Florida, pulled up down ballot red candidates uh, in service of, of the rest of the party. So I think that, you know, DeSantis is um, an incredibly compelling choice for the Republican Party. I also think that there's something to be said for somebody like Nikki Haley, who's maybe been out of the spotlight for, for you know, a, a little while, but was a Trump appointee and so has that name and can continue in that legacy, in the positive parts of that legacy, um, but also has the sort of classic conservative uh, character traits, which are you know, strong on on uh, illegal immigration, but a, a, a vocal proponent of legal immigration. Uh, her parents were were immigrants for, uh, themselves. Um, and in addition to that, she is incredibly careful with her rhetoric. She is uh, well-spoken and yet incredibly strong in the way that she stands for American values. And so I think that we've got a lot of different compelling options that we need to be looking into. Uh, as a party right now. Something you mentioned in your article that really jumped out at me is uh, that young conservative thought leaders are being chased away um, by by Trump, among among others, and maybe some of his supporters. And I think in the, in this midterm election, if I'm not mistaken, I've seen I've seen a couple of different articles that seem to make a pretty strong case that uh, young people were a very decisive factor in in why that uh, that red wave did not materialize. Yeah. Absolutely. You're you're totally right. There is uh, that that is absolutely true about the midterms. And I think when you're looking at New York specifically, which is where I'm based, um, there is a large contingent of of very measured, very uh, thoughtful, conservative young people who are working at organizations like the National Review. Um, in the Wall Street Journal, who are looking for representation that is different than the representation that we're seeing now, right? So we are forced as young conservatives to to uh, throw our weight behind people like Gavin Wax from the New York Young Republican Club, who is an incredibly divisive figure. You can see him on on Instagram cozying up to Matt Gates and and advocating for Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene, uh, and you know. On his Twitter feed, you can see him harassing Venezuelan dissidents and, you know, advocating for a mono ethnicity in our country and for the Americanization of all names for U.S. immigrants. He calls for a, an immigration moratorium and an end to dual citizenship. 
And, and he undermines the First Amendment with, with a lot of these arguments that he makes. And so we as young conservatives can think critically about what this means and about how how people who might who might be initially turned off by the idea of conservative people, uh, you know, are just going to turn and run the other way before we can have a have a civil conversation. We need to be thinking about our leadership. Okay, I'm I'm looking forward to us talking again as as we move forward because I'm sure that this is not a topic that's going to die down anytime soon. It'll probably just intensify over the next couple of years. Um, Grace, for people who want to follow your writings and follow you, what's the best way to go about that? Absolutely. So I have a website. It is Grace Daily D A L E Y Badalik B Y D A L E K dot com, and I also have an Instagram where I post most of my writing uh, and where you can kind of follow along with the things that I'm doing on a daily basis. And that is at Grace underscore Daily. Okay, and uh, you are on Twitter, correct? You know, I am on Twitter, but I got to be honest with you, it's a little bit. It feels like a little bit of a cesspool, so I'm not okay. on it very often. I would, <laughs> I would recommend you find me on Instagram or on my website. You got it. Grace Bidalek, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Jack Rowlett back to the program. Jack, you are a Young Voices contributor, and if you wouldn't mind, tell us just a little bit more about what else you do in your life. Well, I'm currently, most of my time is taken up by being a student of politics and international relations over here in the the UK. Um, so sort of studying all those issues and uh, writing a dissertation at the moment. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm doing stuff with Young Voices on TV and radio and writing articles like the, the one we're going to discuss today. Well, we've got a very interesting topic. This may seem controversial to some, but I'm I'm right on board with you. The title of it is Why Legalizing Ecstasy Should Be a Drug Policy Priority. And for people who aren't familiar with, with ecstasy, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what this drug is, what it does? Yeah, so it's a uh, it's usually taken as a pill or as a sort of crystal, and it kind of emerged in the rave scene of the 1980s and 1990s. And people take it often at parties, but not always. And it kind of it increases your sociability. People who uh, use the sort of reports a sense of euphoria that you get from it, and you know a sense of closeness to others, and you know you can enjoy the sort of strobe lights that you see in clubs that bit more. And so it's it's quite a popular drug for for partygoers um, across the Western world, really. Um, but it is illegal in most countries, including in the UK um, and most of the US, as I understand it too. And now you you mentioned in your article. There is a danger, of course, in in consuming drugs, but uh, one of the biggest dangers is when this drug is being sold or, or created by unscrupulous criminals. Talk to me about the risks for those who choose to use MDMA. Yeah, so the, the article itself is sort of a response to a, a trend we've seen in Britain, um, which is a dramatic rise in the number of people dying um, sort of not 
ecstasy, but deaths that are related to ecstasy use. So we've seen 588 people die in the UK over the last decade for, from that, um, which is a dramatic increase compared to the 2000s and the 1990s. And if we dip down and we look at these individual tragedies, really, um, where deaths are occurring, actually, it's not pure MDMA taken in the right conditions at the right dose. So what's happening often is because the, the market is controlled by criminals because it's illegal, criminals are sometimes passing off other much more dangerous drugs uh, as MDMA, so this is called PMA, um, which we've seen deaths from that in the UK. Someone buys the drug, they think it's MDMA, they take a lot of it, and then they end up being rushed to hospital and, and tragically dying because it's not what they thought it was. Um, so we see that, but we also see MDMA that is it is actual ecstasy, but it's being adulterated with other substances. So users aren't quite sure of the risk profile and how those different substances are going to interact with each other. And then there's also the trend we've seen where the uh, sort of dose, the concentration of MDMA in pills now is much, much higher than it was in the 2000s or the 1990s. And consequently, people buying MDMA from dealers who aren't always honest about the amount, the actual amount that's in the pills they're selling. So people are taking far more than they're intending to and consequently overdosing and sometimes dying tragically as a result. And, this, and the reason for this is the criminal market because we, users are not educated on best practice. They're not always sure about getting the right product. And they're not always sure about what even the product is and what other stuff might be in there. And that problem is created by the criminal market. So I, you make a very strong case against prohibition, and this is this uh, this is very uh, relevant to me in that uh, yesterday we celebrated uh, the end of prohibition of alcohol in the United States back in 1933, and I was having this discussion with my kids about well why was prohibition a bad thing? Uh, we don't drink, but you know I I told them. Prohibition actually caused a lot more problems than it actually solved. And it sounds like the same case can be made for this. Not that we're trying to encourage people to take drugs, but if, if people do want to take these drugs, and clearly they do because it's enjoyable, there's, there's more safety in having a legal avenue by which they can access this than by simply letting the criminal elements distribute it without care as to, or accountability as to uh, their, their customer base. Yeah, no, for sure. That's absolutely right. And we see wherever prohibition is used and on whatever substances it's used, it creates far more problems than it solves. And I think that this is where I hope people who are really anti-drugs and people who are who you might call pro-drugs may be able to find some common ground. Because actually, what we all want is fewer people to be dying, fewer people to be coming to harm. And what we're seeing at the moment with prohibition is that more people are coming to harm. And usage rates of drugs, and ecstasy in particular, have remained relatively flat. So we've had a lot of tough talk from politicians about trying to cut down the number of people doing recreational drugs. But the same number of people are doing it. The criminal penalties aren't deterring them. The risk of dying isn't deterring them either. And so what I propose in the article is that it would be much better to have a legitimate legal way of procuring MDMA. So I suggest that we should allow it to be sold at pharmacies where we can have people who are medical experts who understand the drug and we can regulate dose as well and someone can come to the pharmacy they can present some id to show that they're 
an adult because we don't want children to be doing drugs. Right. And they can then get a, a sort of selection of pills and they know the exact dose and they can be given advice on the best practice when taking the drug. And also we can do basic screening to sort of screen out people who just shouldn't be doing ecstasy at all. So people with heart problems, for example. And that's that would really solve many, indeed all of the problems that we have with the criminal market at the moment. And so I'm hoping that people of different perspectives can come together, acknowledge that the current system isn't working and say, okay, well, if it's just a fact that people are gonna do ecstasy, whether it's legal or not, let's make sure those who are doing it are doing it in the safest conditions possible. Now, on a related note, I'm curious, what's the what's the status of cannabis in the UK? So cannabis is currently a class B drug. We have a sort of classification system. So it's it's less severe, it's a less severe punishment than if you're caught with MDMA, for example, but it is still firmly illegal. Um, and, and actually, this is this sort of relates to another point I make in the article, which is there is a, a, quite a bit of talk now in the UK about potentially legalizing cannabis, as I know has been done in some parts of the US. Mm -hmm. But the point that I'm trying to make is actually ecstasy should be more of a priority because people aren't dying from smoking dodgy spliffs, whereas people are dying from taking pills containing adulterants, you know, pills that don't contain MDMA at all. That should be a priority. And, and it also, given that other countries are legalizing cannabis, actually, by focusing on drugs like ecstasy, it gives the opportunity for Britain and any other country that decides to take up the mantle to sort of be a world leader in harm reduction and to try and do something and show that a system works that no other country has really been brave enough to try yet. Something you point out in your article that really rings true as well is uh, that uh, through legalization, that, that's not an endorsement. It's not saying, hey, everybody should be doing this. But those who do choose to use these types of recreational drugs, particularly MDMA, if they run into problems, if, if they have concerns or they need medical attention, would be more likely to seek medical attention rather than think, ah, but I might face criminal repercussions if I do. Yeah, so this is true. I and mean, it's, it's really important to say that actually in the UK, you, you won't face repercussions if you've taken illegal MDMA and you go to, and you end up having to go to the hospital. You won't face criminal repercussions. But there is a sort of fear that you might. I, I know of a lot of people who perhaps haven't sought help when they've really needed it because they're scared of what might happen. And also because there's a stigma attached to it, that they're worried that, um, you know, they're going to be judged for it. And also, even if there aren't any criminal repercussions for themselves. They're worried about what might happen to their friends, maybe, who've done it with them. You know, so there's, there's, if we were to legalize it, we would end up in a situation where people could know going into doing the drug what the best practice is. They know what the product is. But also, things do go wrong sometimes. And if something does go wrong, there's a really easy, safe route to getting help where you know you're not going to be judged for it. And you, you're not taking any, you know, risks in terms of, you know, there's, there's not going to be any criminal repercussions for you or anybody else. We've got about one minute left here, Jack. I just I want to ask um, who who primarily would oppose this or, or where is the opposition coming from? Well, the opposition is coming from lots of different sides of politics in the UK, party politics specifically. We know from the polling that a huge proportion of the British public think the current policy framework for drugs isn't working. But we just it's the politicians are not being brave enough. They know that our current policy isn't working, that it's killing people even. But, you know, our current prime minister will say things like, there's nothing recreational about doing drugs. And it's just, 
it's it's in an ignorance of the facts and so until politicians are brave enough to actually recognize that the system is not working at the moment and recognize that okay they might annoy a few people if they change the system but actually the public will be on side if you're putting in a framework that's going to save people's lives but it does take bravery from politicians and right now conservatives labor everyone in the everyone in, in parliament really um in party politics is not having that bravery they're not taking the brave steps to change our drug policy Again, we are talking with Jack Rowlett. He is the Young Voices contributor. Jack, thank you for weighing in on this subject, and have a Merry Christmas. You too. Thank you very much. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Benjamin Ayanian back to the, the program. Uh, ben, this is not your first time on the show. Some folks are going to recognize you, but for those meeting you for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, good to be back, Brian. Thanks for having me on as always. Um, I'm a Young Voices contributor, just recently graduated from uh, the University of Minnesota back in the spring. Um, and now, uh, pretty soon, we'll be getting prepared for the LSAT and going to law school. Um, so until then, um, I am writing as much as I can about the current events that we see in our world today. Well, we've got a great current event to discuss, you and I. Um, I'm looking at uh, the piece you've written for DC Journal. Uh, Midterms highlighted a failing duopoly and a need for reform. And look, I'm, I'm not a very political animal, but I have to admit, after the midterm election, I kind of felt myself, I I kind of mourned a little bit, like, you know, nothing really changed. It felt like, it felt like a fizzle. Tell me your reaction. Uh, is this common? Were even, even the non-political folks, were, were they kind of disappointed in, in what we learned from the midterms? Well, I think what we learned from the midterms is that people are not happy about what's on the menu. Uh, it doesn't matter where you're looking. They don't like what they're seeing. I mean... Americans were incredibly unhappy with the State of the Union moving into the midterms. Um, the economy is in a very precarious place. We still are dealing with high inflation. We're staring down the possibility of a recession coming up here in 2023. And normally, um, when the polling data looks as it does, um, we see the incumbent party um, get blown out it feels in these types of elections. At least that's what you expect to see um, if the other party is able to capitalize to a relatively meaningful degree. And that's just not what we saw um, at all. People were you know, fearful about the economy. They did not approve of Joe Biden. Um, but regardless, the Republicans lost many key gubernatorial races, were unable to flip the Senate and actually looks like they might lose a seat in the Senate. We'll see. We got a runoff in Georgia um, and they were able to take the Republicans were able to take the House, but uh, by a much slimmer margin than I think many anticipated. And so what I think we learned from the midterms is that even though people were unhappy with, you know, let's say the meal they were being served with Democrats in office, uh, the alternative that they could order was not very appealing to them. Where did the Republicans go wrong, in your opinion? What, uh, what, where did they squander, you know, their opportunity where they could have cleaned up, but they, but they didn't? What did they do wrong? 
Um, I think a big issue was the candidates that ended up uh, getting the nomination. You know, I don't think that Trump uh, did a great job picking his preferred candidates. And, you know, whether Republicans, moderates, independents, Democrats, whether they like it or not, um, at least leading up into these midterms, you know, Trump's support held sway, um, at least among primary voters. And so I think that the Republicans made a mistake with um, a lot of the candidates they they decided to run. Blake Masters, for example, seemed, in my view, it was a very chaotic campaign. Um, others may not feel that way, but I felt as though it was, wasn't very organized because he was never really set on positions. He never honed in, I felt, on a lot of important topics. I know he honed in more on immigration um, leading up to the election. But, you know, he began his campaign um, by, you know, explicitly denying the 2020 election results. Um, he was very anti-abortion and then tried to moderate on abortion issues, taking things down from his website um, to because he probably saw some poll numbers that he didn't like. And then at the end, like a couple weeks before the election, tried to appeal to libertarian voters and actually was able to convince the libertarian candidate to drop out and endorse him, which was mm. bizarre in and of itself. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But um, and then in Republic um, in Pennsylvania, I thought, you know, Dr. Oz, as we all know him, was very easily painted as an outsider and an opportunist. Um, and he also shed a lot of doubt on the 2020 presidential election, which is not going to go over well in a state like Pennsylvania. And now we've seen the runoff in Georgia. Um, Herschel Walker, it, when you listen to Herschel Walker uh, campaign, there's nothing inspiring about it. To be quite honest, it's mostly uncomfortable. He's very rarely you know, clear in his messaging. Um, he had a scandal ridden campaign on top of that. So that certainly did not help. Um, Raphael Warnock is not an enticing politician, um, but, you know, I'll put it this way. If I were voting in Georgia, I probably would have sat the election out because I find both um, options to be very underwhelming. So I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, but it sounds like in many cases the voters decided to go with the uh, the opportunist they knew versus the opportunist they didn't really know. In other words, the it's kind of a lesser of two evils argument, but really the, their choices were not that great. And, and this is where you talk about this this failed duopoly. Um, what can be done? What what are some of the steps we could take from here that we that the rest of our elections don't have this similar bad taste? Yeah, well, I think what we need to look at is not just you know what steps could possibly be taken to make our um, election system better, but what steps are feasible that could make our election. Us um, better. So, yeah, like you said, um, there were you know poor candidates on both sides. Like Dr. Oz lost to um, his opponent, who had a stroke and had a lot of trouble speaking leading into election. Um, it's just like not good options anywhere here. And so, what can we do? I think for one, we need to protest against discriminatory um, ballot access in certain states. I think Tennessee is a great example. A lot of people um, like to bring up, and rightfully so, because in Tennessee, to run, um, if a minority party wants to run a candidate, they have to collect you know, exponentially larger numbers of signatures than the Democrats or Republicans. It's actually based on proportion of how many people voted in the prior gubernatorial race. So, for example, um, Democrats need 25 signatures each to run a candidate on a Tennessee ballot, whereas um, a Tennessee 
if let's say the Libertarian Party wanted to run um, a candidate, they would need over 56,000 signatures. So I think things like that definitely need to be protested against to give people more options. Um, I think additionally, I think ranked choice voting is something that ought to be considered very strongly um, for more elections and in more parts of this country. It's gaining popularity. I mean, um, as of April, I believe, was the last polling data I saw, over 60% of Americans supported um, ranked choice voting. And a lot of the fears um, are quite overblown, like, for example, that it's complicated. Exit polling data constantly finds that you know the vast majority of voters who take part in ranked choice choice voting elections, they find them to be simple and pretty easy to understand. Um, Another concern people sometimes bring up is that there's gonna be more thrown out ballots that just really hasn't come to fruition. And so, you know, Alaska just had um, a midterm, or just had, yeah, in their midterms, ranked choice voting, which if you read the Wall Street Journal editorial page, you're gonna see a lot of uh, criticisms of this because Sarah Palin didn't win. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, Democrat um, who won that House seat actually increased their first, um, you know, first choice votes um, in this recent election. Um, 80 percent of voters found it easy to understand, like she's a moderate Democrat, um, was actually endorsed um, by plenty of Republicans. And so anyway, I just think that ranked choice voting needs to be um, in the forefront of our minds. I think the big question that comes to mind when I hear about ranked choice voting, and I think it was just a few weeks ago I interviewed uh, Young Voices contributor Sarah Montalbano about it, and she was very much like, no, this this makes us have to be strategists. But my question comes down to, does it make it easier for those already in power to maintain their power? Because I I feel like they feel like regardless of who wins, whether it's Democrat or Republican, the government always wins. The status quo always seems to emerge victorious. And as a voter, that discourages me. Yeah. So someone with uh, like classical liberal, more libertarian ideals like I have, you know, I don't think that my ideals are going to be implemented in policy anytime soon. And I'm not even saying ranked choice voting would necessarily help with that. But what I think ranked choice voting does is it allows people to learn more about independents and third party candidates. It makes it more worthwhile because you can rank, let's say, a libertarian or an independent as your first choice without fearing that it's going to place your least favored candidate in Washington, D.C. It really helps eliminate the spoiler effect. And so I think expanding options in the American psyche uh, could help give us better outcomes, maybe more moderate Democrats and Republicans, and maybe more Americans would choose to learn about minor party candidates. I actually like how you explained that, because to me that that translates as, you mean I could vote without having to hold my nose? Wow, (laughs) that would be great. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Ben, we're up against the clock here. Tell people where they can follow you on social media, where they can follow your work. Yes, um, follow me at Benjamin Ianian on Twitter. You can also follow me on Instagram at Bianian13 or just search Benjamin Ianian on either and you'll find me. Okay, great to talk with you. I appreciate your analysis here. Have a Merry Christmas if we don't talk uh, before then. You as well. Thanks for having me on.